Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The only difference between a CIA officer and a criminal is that what we do is sanctioned crime. We're trained how to execute criminal acts and execute them on foreign soil to the advancement of American national security. As a criminal, you have to figure these things yeah. out, how to get the documents, how to get mm -hmm. these things, how to get an ID, how to get a passport, and possibly getting arrested every single time. But you created your own fraudulent documents. I had a team of artists create mine. I cannot imagine how stressful it must be to actually try to commit fraud face-to-face -face with a bank. The difference is that if I got flagged going through customs. I'm going to get arrested and brought back to the United States and I'm going to go to jail. A CIA agent is facing a vastly different scenario. The only kind of person who's going to be a useful spy is somebody who has had incredible success in their country. Think about it. To steal secrets from a country, you have to get access to somebody who's been trusted with secrets for their country. These are people who have had fantastic success, who have done amazing things, which means they're a little up too. And the only way they're going to trust you to give you their secrets, the only way they're going to trust you to get into a clandestine relationship where you exchange gold, alcohol, and whatever, is if they look at you and just like you were talking about how drug dealers can sniff out a narc, the only way that a f***ed up trader is going to look at you and trust you is if when they sniff, they smell that you're f***ed up too. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I am here with Andrew Bustamante. He is a former CIA agent and, can I say podcaster? Yeah. Podcaster? You've got, a, you've got a podcast, right? Yeah, absolutely. Is it just audio, or is it on YouTube It's yet? everywhere, man. It's i got a YouTube podcast. I've got a Spotify podcast. It's everywhere. He's huge. He's <laughs> everywhere. And we're going to be doing an interview that has been a long time coming, and... Thank you guys for watching. And so, let's be honest, let's be honest. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt your intro. No, sorry. That the reason that I got as big as I got was because of an introduction that you made. I, see, I'm taking 100%. Typically, I would say, <laughs> no, that's not true. You were already on your way. No, um, but you were already on your way. But I did, I did, listen. And what's so funny is that I hammered, because the way this, yeah, we'll just start here. So you... <laughs> I was writing just the throw, book. Throw him under the bus. Yeah, so yeah. Throw Danny under the bus. Yeah. No, Danny did great. Danny did good. Uh, eventually. Sometimes you have to twist someone's arm. So <laughs> you. Wait, wait, wait. What is the you, guy? Wait, what's the podcast guy first? Because it started where he contacted me. Um, it was a K32 or K. Oh, yeah. Kilo I, yeah. five or something Kilo like that. Kilo 23. Yes, You're exactly yes, right, yes. man. So I, he had contacted me and said, hey, would you be interested in coming on my show? And I said, yeah, absolutely. He goes, well, give me a little bit more time to put some more stuff up because I, I haven't put a lot of stuff up. I said, yeah, that's fine. And I just done Danny's show, whatever, four or five, what, concrete, six months before. And then I said, yeah, no problem. Well, then I started writing Frank Amadeo's 
I took a yep. took a synopsis and I turned it into a full length book, at least a very short full length book. But I contacted him and said, "Hey, do you have anybody a former CIA agents?" And he said, "I got three of them." Mm. I said, "Do you have anybody that would be willing to read the book that is not going to tote the line? That's not going to that, that would be interested in actually giving me a you know a, a, a you know his viewpoint of, of this." You know, story. nutty kind of character that yeah, I've got yeah. that I've wrote a story about. He said, "Yeah, absolutely. oh, you you want he's you want you want Andrew Bustamante." I said, "Okay, okay." And he gave me your num- number. You contacted me immediately. You said, "Absolutely, send it to me." I sent it to you. You read through the whole thing and then systematically broke down the character, kind of piece by piece by piece, which was great, and I appreciate that. And then I remember, and then I said, "Hey, you know, you'd be great to talk to my buddy uh, Danny." And then I called Danny, and Danny goes, "Who?" I said, "No, no, no. Listen, this guy." And he goes, "Well, I don't understand. What did yeah. what did he do?" I said, "No, he's like former. He's a former CIA agent. How do you even know that?" I said, I, "Look, I know that. Okay, talk to the guy." I said, "What do you care? You're not checking any facts." Um, and I said, "So check him out." And I said, "Call him." And he said, "All right, yeah, all right bro, give me his number. I sent you his number." And then this I, is a great Danny impression, by the way. Yeah. It's a oh fantastic yeah. He, he's, Danny impression. Yeah, yeah. He's he's always annoyed. Um, <laughs> He's a he, he's a little bit of a cranky guy. He's always annoyed <laughs> until he wants something. From yes, him. and then it's like, bro, you've got to come now. I had a guest. Fo- what, oh, now we're buddies. We're always buddies when Danny wants something. He's either cranky or excited. Yeah, Danny Jones, Concrete Podcast, fantastic guy. But he's only he only has two gears: cranky, excited. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, yeah, I, I told him over and over. And then you, and then I think even a couple of weeks, maybe two, three weeks later, you said, "Hey, whatever happened with that guy?" And I was like, "Bro, I don't know. I've texted him twice." Texted him again. He's like, who? I said, bro, I told you about the guy. And I said, you think, oh, yeah, yeah, the CIA guy. I said, yes, the CIA guy. He goes, I don't know. What's he going to talk about? I said, how would I know what he's going to talk about? He's super interesting. The guy's worked undercover. How many CIA people do you know? You know, and he was like, all right, let me think about it. So I'm telling you, months and months went by. It happened again. Same conversation I had with him again. And then one day he called me. He's like, bro, I had somebody fall, uh, uh, fall through. They're not coming. I need, I, I need somebody. Can you either come or do you have anybody? I said, oh my God, bro. Are you serious? Yeah. I said, I have told you. And he went, he said, all right, you're, 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 send me the information. I sent it to him and then you went on the show. It's my favorite, my favorite kind of guest to be is the guest of last resort. I yeah, mean, honestly, I, I know. yeah, but you, it's how I, it's how I dated most of my way through I, college too. But then you walk <laughs> in the door, you sit down and as soon as you left, Danny called me and said, this guy's amazing, bro. He talked about this and this. And I was like, second, yeah, I, second gear. Right. I'm like, what's <laughs> second <the> gear, Danny. <laughs> what's, I'm like, I told you. No, but I, and I think he said, I'm going to have his wife on. I think that's at that point he had said, uh, talked about, I think I did. I already know that your wife, that you had met her in the CIA. Yeah. I mean, you and I spent a lot yeah. of time going through your Frank Amadeo story. Yes. And you even were so gracious as to come and be filmed. By the guy who clearly didn't know what he was doing, um, <laughs> who I had somebody who said he would help me make a sizzle reel. And once again, I was, I'd been out of the halfway house six months. I have no idea how anything works. Mm. Cannot do a podcast. Didn't even know how to, you know, work my, my phone um, very much. Uh, certainly didn't know how to use a camera or, or upload to videos. But anyway, what's funny about that is that then I, then I did a podcast on Danny's show later. So I later did a podcast on Danny's show and we were talking and he said uh, he was talking about how you had gone on Julian's show and how you, oh, Julian loves him. 
Julian, yeah. he's like his go-to guy. And he this, and he's going on and on. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, you know, he's been on here and this. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, you know what's funny about that, Dan? I said, is that I begged you. He's like, you did beg me. You did. did. I said, he's like, you know, he went on Alex, Alex Friedman. You know, he's been on this and that. He's doing great. He's I'm like, right, right. I said, you know what happened now? I said, like, I was supposed to come on my show. He's like, yeah, what's up with that? And I said, yeah, I said, now when I text him. Hey, bro, what's going on? I said, I don't get a return. return <laughs> I said, and you, and then you, I said, Danny, you will be there too. Someday you'll be like, Hey, bro, you're in town. Can you come on the podcast? He'll be like, Danny Jones sounds familiar. <laughs> I know, I know but the here's, name. here's the thing, just like you were saying, right? You, you, you spent, you spent time in prison, man. So when you come out, you have a little bit of an uphill learning curve. Right. And, uh, and for sure you're struggling on how to send a text message. Cause for, for like months, the only text messages I got from you were links to videos that you had made. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, I feel like, uh, I feel like Matt's account may have been taken over by a bot. Right. So I went and, ahead and put or, you on a filter yeah. on a nice screen. You're app. on a list. Yep. Yeah. You're just, you're just one of 30 guys on a list that get all the new videos. And, and I'm that's trying a, to get views. Like, I don't know how to do it. I make a video. That's I not, send it to that's everybody. not the way to do it. Yeah, I, <laughs> that's how you end up on a spam filter. Yeah. Oh, I've had people call me and say, listen, stop sending me these things. Yeah. I've had people send me, uh, I've had people that I've never texted. I've sent them stuff. And then all I'll get back is it'll say, stop. Because <laughs> they think it's a bot. And if you put send stop, yeah, it'll stop. I'm like, bro, this is Matt. They're like, oh, I don't know. You keep yep. sending me these videos. So that's all right. But that that is that is exactly what happened. Yeah. Well, you know, baby steps. Ba- I don't know what I'm doing. You you clearly have gotten quite a bit better. And let's let's not men- let's not fail to mention the fact, right? That you started by having some dude come out and film a scissor reel that sounds like it didn't go well. No. So dude, you've you've crossed the hundred K down the hundred K subscriber mark on YouTube. You've got a beautiful plaque. studio here. Yeah, you got the plaque. plaque. That's what I'm saying. Like yeah. which which by the way, there's a there's a very small percentage of people who get to that spot. It, so you're doing something right. You're doing um, lots of things right. I appreciate that. And the funny thing about this. You're just not sending text messages right. <laughs> no. Well, the funny thing about that whole thing is that everything I'm doing right now is what, while I was in the halfway house, kind of tr- scrolling through YouTube and looking at these different podcasters and stuff, is everything that I thought, how silly. Look at how silly this. Look, this guy did a whole video about getting 100,000. He's got. They sent him a little plastic plaque. That's just silly. Listen, I was thrilled when I got my plaque. <laughs> I was like, Bro. I'm, I'm closing in on mine. Oh my God. And I know exactly. I'm right. like, oh, when is it going to happen? When and is it going to happen? Is the channel Everyday, uh, Everyday Spy? Everyday Spy Podcast. Okay. Yeah. The Everyday Spy Podcast is the YouTube channel. And uh, my Andrew Bustamante YouTube channel is the one closing in on 100K. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was just going to say, Julian would not approve. Julian has convinced Danny to rebrand Concrete as Danny Jones. Yep. You know, which makes sense. You know, he, I had heard that prior to that, I'd heard people on YouTube explaining how you need to kind of brand yourself. And so I had called mine initially like Inside True Crime, but then I've switched it. Then very quickly, I switched it to Matthew Cox, Inside True Crime. So, because you are, you, you, there are people that are watching videos where literally I'm saying five, I'm talking for five, five percent of the video. Yeah. It's 95% the the guest, but they're watching it. And half the comments are about me. And I said nothing. So I, I get it. People, for some reason, they 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 get they get to like your personality. They like you. They follow you. They they support you, which initially sounds silly until you really need that yeah. support. You know what I'm saying? And then you then you're like, you feel like, wow, I I, you know, you are you really start appreciating it. Where before it just seemed it seemed silly to me until I was in that position where it's like, 
this is all I do now. So how, you know, you, it would, I'd be a pretty big jerk to still think it's silly when I, I'm living off it and I do appreciate it. Yeah. So. I think the word you're looking for is, I mean, silly is definitely the word that comes to mind, but what we're really reaching for is humble. It's a humbling thing yeah. to know that people watch you, to know that people can connect with you, to know that they can relate to you and that when they hear your guests, right. they're, they themselves are putting themselves in your shoes. Yeah. Right. And that's what I think is so, and that's what podcasting has taught me. It's that it's, that's a humbling privilege to get to reach that many people. No privilege. It's not even, it, it's definitely privilege, yeah. privilege. Yeah. Well, keep in mind too, cause, and I've told you, I, I think I've even said this to you, it was like six months before I, six months before I left prison, like I was laying in my cot in a, pr in prison thinking, how am I going to pay my bills? So this is what's crazy about you, right, man? So, so there's a concept at CIA that we call the availability heuristic. Right. Heuristic is just a fancy word for cognitive bias and cognitive bias is just a fancy word for assumption. But there's this heuristic that is called that ties itself to availability because it basically means that you're always comparing yourself against the most the most similar thoughts, the most similar similar memories that you have that are of recent memory available to you. Right. right. Availability heuristic. So, for example, I was talking to my mother in law. My mother in law is my mother-in-law. So you fill in all of your right. own words there, right? Uh, she's almost 70 years old. Uh, and she's talking about like how she sees the world, but she doesn't realize that everything she's saying is her opinion. Right. It's not fact. It's just her opinion, right? She thinks that she's going to live to be 125 years old. And she thinks that she's going to live to be so old because, you know, my aunt lived to be 105 and my grandmother lived to be 97. And, you know, my aunt's grandmother lived to be 102, whatever else. Right. And I'm like, for every, all she's doing is listing people that fulfill in her mind her own assumption, desire to live to be old. Right. She's not even thinking about all the people in her life that died at 60, 65, 70. Right. right. She's for sure not considering statistically that most Americans don't live past the age of 90. Right. So she's leaning on what's known as an availability heuristic. She's jumping. She's immediately referencing the exceptions to the rule. That's what she's availably pulling from. And that's the same thing that you're often doing when you're remembering your time in prison, right? You're reaching back to this very limited period of your time, of your life, where you were- Felt significant, but okay. If, you know, I'm sure it was very significant <laughs> to you, but the right. significance that it was to you does not actually make it significant in terms of your capabilities. Right. Well, and it was your awesome capabilities, let's be honest. It was your capabilities that made you come up with a crime that kept from being identified for so long, until it was finally identified and you were what, $12 million in? 15. But not many I, people can steal $15 million right. and not get caught. <laughs> in fact, no one. Me and then no one can do it and not get caught. But I was going to say the other thing is too, I'm also pulling from my prior, my own, because you basically are stunted when you enter prison. So I was pulling from my prior experience where YouTube had been out for two years. I don't mm. think I'd ever been on it. There were no podcasters. There were, podcast was not even a, a thing. That wasn't even name. I remember the name. Yep. So it was come. It came up. They. It was developed once I had been in prison for two or three years. I didn't know what it was. Yep. So and the fact that people would become fascinated with criminals to a point where they could actually turn that into a living wasn't a thing. So my whole thing when I'm getting out of prison is I'm thinking. You're a scumbag. Everybody thinks you're a scumbag. They're going to have – the only thing I know about the about the internet is they're very quickly going to realize you're a scumbag. Mm. What are you going to do? You're going to work at McDonald's. You're going to rent someone's spare room. You're going to be humble. 
You're going to be appreciative. You're going to keep your head down. Like that. These are all the things I'm telling myself. Then I get out. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I realized, like, there are guys that have been in prison 30 years getting out doing YouTube channels talking about prison stabbings and riots. And they've got half a million subscribers and they're making a living doing this. Well, when you first came, when you first contacted me, I think the thing that really had stopping power for me was that you were super connected to like these creative artistic endeavors. You were painting, you were writing, you had a blog that had just incredible true crime stories on it. Oh, right. Like that's where you were when I met you. And that was there when that spoke to me more than whatever criminal sentence you were given. Because, and I mentioned this to you before, right? (laughs) CIA officers, as much as we are also like rejected and denounced by huge chunks of society, one of the few groups out there that we actually make friends with, that we actually connect with, are criminals. Right. Current and former criminals. Partly because the only difference between a CIA officer and a criminal is that what we do is sanctioned crime. Right. We're trained how to execute criminal acts and execute them on foreign soil to the advancement of American national security. Criminals have to go through the school of hard knocks. Right. Take a risk, take a chance, and they prey on usually other Americans. Right. Right. So there's a, there are differences between us, but when it comes to the mindset, the risk tolerance, the creative solutions to problems that nobody even faces, and, and for sure, questions that people aren't willing to ask themselves, right? You have asked yourself those questions. You have taken those risks, and you've also done your service for your time right. for being caught and captured and for recognizing that you've had to change your life. But- that creative element of you, right? The writer slash painter slash podcaster, like that exists in all of us too. Like former CA officers, that's how we cope with the terrible things that we've done in the past. When we get a chance to separate ourselves from our, our, our acts, our right. operations, we oftentimes turn to the arts. That's how my company started too. I started by just by writing. Yeah, you had mentioned that, um, well, I mean, one that, you know, as a criminal, like you, you have somebody to, prepare these documents for you to help you along the way and explain where, you know, as a criminal, you have to figure these things out through getting arrested or other criminals or just figuring it out. Will this work? What's the worst that'll happen? And figuring out how to get the documents, how to get Mm -hmm. these things, how to get an ID, how to get a passport as a put and possibly getting arrested every single time. You created your own fraudulent documents. I had a team of artists create mine. Right. Like, it's incredible, dude. Like I, I, I had a driver's license that was sanctioned by the state that it was fraudulently created in. Right. Right. I had a passport that was that was sanctioned by the U.S. Department of State. I, it's completely different yeah, in terms anybody. of you didn't have anything like that. And what's yeah. great? What's great? I also didn't make fifteen million dollars along, <laughs> along the road. <laughs> You're on your way. <laughs> um, but yeah. but it is. It's it's stunning to me to think because I know how how nerve wracking it was for me to cross an international border with a professionally crafted fake passport. I cannot imagine how stressful it must be 
to actually try to commit fraud face to face with a bank or with a with a police officer looking over your shoulder, whatever else that you had to do. It's it's powerful because I know what it felt like to do it my way. I can't imagine what it feels like to do it your way. And the average American who has neither experience, it must be a seriously like you know. I was I was just thinking to myself the difference is that if I got flagged going through pass going through you know customs and something happened. I'm going to get arrested and brought back to the United States and I'm going to go to jail if I'm in and I don't know where you were or anything, but if I'm in Saudi Arabia or (laughs) wherever and you get caught with, you know, a fake passport, like (laughs) it could be bad. Things could go really bad. You don't go back to the United States. No. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, oh, you know, I had a, I have a friend Pete one time. What did he say? (laughs) He was talking about the cartel, like doing content on the cartel. He said, you just got to be careful. He said, because, you know, if something happens and I go, ah, I said, I've, I said, what? I said, what am I going to do? I said that somebody's going to, you know, somebody's going to kill me. I said, I've lived a pretty good life. He said, no, no, it's not them killing you. It's how they're going to kill you. And I thought, he said, if they just shoot you walking out your front door, that's, that's a blessing. Yeah. Because that's not what they're going to do. And I just remember that the, the way he said it so seriously, like the hair mm-hmm. on my arm stood up and he said, Oh, he said, bro, you, you'll, it, it would be, it would be horrendous. You'd be praying for death. And I just thought, Jesus, like, so worst case happens to me, I go to jail, mm-hmm. you know, a CIA agent is facing a vastly different scenario. So you know, in some ways, I'm in a much better position. No, I, I don't disagree with you. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned a story like that, because what, I'm, what I've discovered since getting out, since becoming more public with my own agency background, is that people really don't, I mean, especially American people, the, the average American out there doesn't realize how despicable the world outside of our borders really is, mm-hmm. right? Like cartels. Cartels literally will torture you right? Terrorist groups will torture you. Not, not, not because there's any strategic benefit from it, right. but just because they want to send a message. It's their version of psychological operations. It's, it's a number of different things, right? Not to mention the fact that they're oftentimes like, these are not well-educated, you know, balanced, emotionally stable people who gather into cartels and gather into uh, terrorist organizations or gather into extremist groups. These are desperate people who, who live hard lives, who learn to live by a, a code of ethics that's defined by the organization that they come into. So, you know, the idea that, that you or I might ever actually inflict prolonged pain on somebody, it's, it's difficult to even imagine coming from the American mindset. Um, and and it's, it's fascinating to me because oftentimes Americans will get all up in arms about saving whales and about right. protecting animals from makeup testing. And we'll get upset about, about immigrants being shipped from Texas to New York. Right. Like when you compare those to what's happening in Mexico city, like it's yeah. insane that people don't realize how protected and privileged and, and uh, humane we are. And that we're, we're subdividing and limiting and arguing with each other over, you know, minuscule things. And we're calling it humane. And it, it's the definition of humane is so much wider than what we consider. I, I was going to say in the, you know, I, I, periodically I'll, I'll get somebody on that will be either an ATF agent or DEA agent or um, uh, Raymond Hicks. Uh, there's a, he's a sheriff's deputy who was 
in the, uh, is it Broward County? Broward County. He was in Broward County Sheriff's deputy. They had taken him and he, they were using him to do under uh, controlled buys because he, he grew mm-hmm. up in the streets, right? So, you know, it, it's hard for a normal cop to come off like a drug dealer. You know, he's a, a he, even if it's a black guy, right? Like if he's a black guy raised upper middle class drug dealers, they, 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 they talk to you for five minutes ago. Absolutely not. Like I, you're trying to talk this, but I can feel it's not you. You know, intuition is in, insane, right? It's so Hicks goes out and he's one of these guys selling drugs and they're busting people, but the other deputies are stealing money. Mm-hmm. Like they're taking money from the drug dealers. So he starts to speak out about it, starts to complain about it, starts to make make waves, and they go, "Oh no, well, you, you know, you, you're a problem." They send him to live to go back and work in the jail, which is where he'd come from. He said, oh, "I didn't care about that," but he had made statements where you guys should be in jail. Not some of these drug dealers. Like you guys are, are just as bad as them. You're stealing from them. You're beating them up. You're mm-hmm. you're you know what ends up happening is they end up basically including him on a a case. Um, it's like seven hundred kilos of cocaine or something. It's ridiculous. And he ends up going to trial and wins. They then arrest him again and indict him for something else. This time that he goes to trial again and wins. He he lost everything. Like he lost you know his savings, his house, everything through this process. He was actually arrested. Again, and keep in mind, every time they raided his house. Hmm. So, and in the comments section, guys are saying, we're the most corrupt country. We're the most, we're the most. <laughs> and they keep it. And I'm always in there going, okay, look, there's corruption. Any system, you could design the perfect system, but the moment you put humans in charge of it, there is going to be issues. There's going to be corruption. People are going to take advantage of it. So, and you know. And they're you know, our justice system is the most corrupt. Stop. It's not the most corrupt. Okay. <laughs> is there corruption? Yes. Yeah. Is there an old boys network in some situations? Absolutely. But there's just, you know, it's certainly not the most, you know, is it, it's I actually, look, I just didn't, I, I, I honestly think maybe I met one or two people that it was questionable that maybe they were innocent. And I, I know one guy that I absolutely, he's innocent. He should have got some time for stupidity. Hmm. You know, just for putting yourself in this situation and being stupid, you should have known better. I don't think he was technically what he did was illegal, but you're an idiot. You should have done two years just for being stupid. So, but still innocent. Honestly, other than that, the only real disparities I've seen is in sentencing. You're not innocent. You didn't deserve 15 years. I read your whole case. I read the transcript. You didn't, shouldn't have gotten 15 years. You probably should have got a year or two. But is that corruption? Like, no, it's, it may be slightly unfair and it's not, but in comparison to other countries, bro, come on. Yeah. This yeah. is you, people, people in America, they have no, there's no idea how brutal it is out, out there. It is. It's wild. It's wild that in countries like Thailand, in countries like UAE, in countries like Saudi Arabia, you can't speak out and say a negative comment, even privately, it's, it's legally culpable to say a negative comment about a royal family. Right. right. The royal family of Thailand, the, the Saudi royals, or one of the seven royal families that are inside UAE to even say something negative about them makes you legally culpable. And the, and the prisons, I mean, you can imagine what a prison looks like in UAE. It's yeah. not, it's not like the prisons here in the United no. States where people are given, you know, a closed space where the, where the barred windows are still windows. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's pretty wild. And I will, it's also interesting because, uh, you were just talking about, uh, the, the, the sentencing being the area of discrepancy, right? I don't know what, I don't think people understand how our justice system works. It is a, it is a system that pushes all authority to the judges 
right? right? Judges have independent authority over their court and judges can't even agree with other judges. It's there. Yeah. It is, it is the exact opposite of objective. It is a subjective world. They get to interpret the law. They get to apply the law. They get to do it in their district, their municipality. If they're a Supreme court judge, they do it federally. And I didn't realize this until recently either. Judges are oftentimes given lifetime judgeship. Yeah. yeah. Lifetime. Yeah. Like, so if you're, if you get, you get accepted to be a judge at whatever age, 35, 45, 55, whatever it might be, you never have to leave. It's not publicly elected. Yeah. After that, like you're you're a judge forever. So if so you you're not really concerned about p- public opinion because it, it, it's almost impossible to get rid of me. Exactly, it's insane, man. And that's the justice system, which is one of the three legs that our entire American system is built on. Right, right. the judicial branch. It's just it's one of those things to me that's both a superpower and a vulnerability in our system because we we have that process. Right. Where you are, you do have yeah, to earn a, the right to be a judge. You do have to be yeah. publicly elected. Well, and it's positions. reviewed. There's a review process and a review process and a review process up to the Supreme Court if they want to hear it. Because they don't always have people like, oh, go to the Supreme Court. They don't have to hear it. Yeah. But yeah, there's a review process all the way up through the through the whole thing. The only problem is it does take a long time. It is cumbersome. And you may have to sit in, in jail for five years until your situation gets rectified. But the, the fact that there is the possibility of it being yeah. cleared up a system at all. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, oh, it's funny. Uh, I, there was a guy, uh, Ephraim Devaroli had told me one time, um, they can, but and this is, this is, it goes against what you're saying. He said, they can do anything they want to you as long as they give you a system to appeal it. Mm. And I was like, I was like, Oh wow. Like the way he said that, I was like, wow. He's, he's a, think about it. He's like, oh, you have a problem with that? Well, here, fill out this form. Yep. You can, you can appeal it. It goes to the next step. Oh, you didn't like our opinion. Great. Go to the next step. (laughs) You know? So he's like, he's like, they'll drag it out by the time maybe you'll win. He said, but two years later, you've already done your sentence. Yeah. Ours are perfect. No, I agree. And what's, what's, what's wild to me is that what I've discovered in my kind of CIA experience looking at the United States is we are very much a country of conviction. We're looking for and rewarding the most convicted people, the people who can show the most tenacity, the most determination, the most diligence. And all of our systems are created to eat away at each of those things, right? So that the person who doesn't have follow through, the person who isn't tenacious, the person who doesn't have the courage to keep pushing on, the person who gives up, that's our favorite kind of person. That's inside the United States. Everybody loves the person who gives up. Because the person who gives up just pays a little extra money to have somebody else fix the problem. The person who gives up pays their taxes on time and at the maximum rate. The person who gives up just follows the rule of law and crosses at the crosswalk. The person who gives up is the person that everybody gets to walk on. And we raise people to get walked on. Public school raises you to be walked on. Church raises you to get walked on. Like we live in a culture that's all, that's literally propagating the idea that to be a good citizen, you have to shut up and take it. And then the people who don't, the few that don't, and the few who show the resilience year after year, decade after decade, to not get stepped on and to not put up with shit, those few people end up being wildly successful and they become the target of criticism and anger from everybody else. But by then, they've already gotten accustomed to being yelled at all the time. So they just roll with it, right? That's look at look at your Steve Jobses, look at your Elon Musks, look at your Donald Trumps, look at all these fantastic celebrity names. Right. But then you don't even have to look at the biggest names. The people out there who are making millions of dollars a year in silence 
because they're the kings of their industry, the king of the tire industry, the king of the motor oil industry, the king of the foam wall industry. They all have tops of their industries and inside their industry, I guarantee you, they are hated and despised by everybody else who's just trying to scratch by and make a living. I, I was going to say, I, I had a guy uh, one time who was telling me he was, he was actually, he was, we were talking about the middle class or something. He actually was kind of like mo almost mocking the middle class. And I was like, bro, like, like I wish I had been middle class to, to, to be honest, you know, like I wouldn't have had to go to jail. I wouldn't have lost all the things that I lost and all because of my, all my fault, but because it's like the middle class, like, you know, they're, they are the backbone, you know what I'm saying? But you're right. But you're absolutely right. Like that is what, and I always joked about this, about any type of program in prison is designing you is, is they're educating you to go work at Walmart. Yeah. Like it just like public school, they're educating you to go, just go get a, a, a a lower middle class or middle class job. Like that's really what high school is. Hey, by the time you're done with high school, you are educated to be lower middle class. You know what I'm saying? Like still middle class, yeah. but not on the high end. So that's what they want. Cause they need that massive tax base to follow the rules and pay in everything. And, you know, and as horrible as this might sound, you know, God bless them. Like it's critical. The, it's, it's, it's critical. It, absolutely. It's, it's exact. We would fail as a country without them. And it's, it and just didn't is, work for me. Well, and, and this is this is what I think is so interesting. Because as much as people might want to hate the fact that what we're saying is true, the other thing that's also true is that the reason we are the world's superpower, the reason we are the top economic engine in the world, right. is because we have created this, this massive, massive class, right. class of cogs. Yeah. Right? Cogs that are that are dissatisfied, angry, frustrated you know, they, they bitch about it when they go home, they struggle for 35 years and they complain, but they still do it. You know, what's funny though, you go to any other foreign country out there. And what you'll find is that the lack of cog based education yeah. becomes a massive drain on their economy. Right. And they would, they would die to, they to, would to die. be, to be in that position yep. in the United States. What's funny is it's so funny because it, it's totally, it's, it's just circumstantial because the same people that are middle-class today, or even lower middle-class a hundred years ago, like the Rockefellers, these people are all living better than them. You yep. say, they say, oh no, they don't have as much money. It doesn't matter. They have dental care. They're yeah. not going to, they, they have medical. Yeah. They're going to live twice as long. Like, like uh, I, I forget which, um, like one of the Rockefellers lost like three kids. I don't know if it was a Rockefeller, but it was one of these guys that like, he lost like three kids and his wife, yeah. like to diseases that now you go to the doctor and they'd be like, here, take these pills for 10 days. You're good. <laughs> you know, what are you talking and, about? And they won't because we'll only take our pills for seven days. And then yeah. we'll feel better because we know more than the doctor, right? It's insane because you're exactly right, right? Dental technology of the 1950s, dental technology of the 1920s pales in comparison to what we get right now on on your employer's health insurance plan. Yeah. Well, and YouTube, entertainment, like across the board, your life is so substantially better. But, you know, people, it's because it's so available and cheap that they don't appreciate it. Yeah, they don't understand yeah. it. Yeah. You well, go, again, to, go to prison for 10 years, get out and be like, I'm walking around with my cell phone. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this is amazing. There are boobs right here. Yeah, I could watch anything. <laughs> so, and I could find anything. That's, you know? that's the availability heuristic, man. That's, yeah. that's exactly what you're talking about. When you're surrounded and inundated by, cheap entertainment and boxed wine and anything that you could possibly want, it's all available to you. Right. So then you think it's it's something that it's not. You, you take it for granted. Yeah. You assume it's either less important or more important than it really is. Like that's all part of that that cognitive bias that that distorts your point of view. Well, I have guys uh, with YouTube, uh, since mm -hmm. this is something we have in common, um, with the YouTube thing, it's funny, I'll meet these guys that are like, oh, you're doing a YouTube channel? 
Oh, you know, you know, and I'm like, yeah, they're like, what else do you do? I'm like, no, no, it's like paying like all my bills. Like, it's great. It's actually working. Like it's working. And they're like, oh, well, that must be nice. I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, but it didn't, I didn't put up a video, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I had a plan. Yep. I had a long-term plan. And you grind. And I, exactly. And I, listen, I even, the first videos I was putting out for the first six months, every video was called the grind. It was like the grind. <laughs> and then the title, like grind one, we got video, you know, one, two, three, yeah. I did it for six months. And every week I was putting something out and it was like, it doesn't matter what I put out to put out something. It has to be longer than, you know, I had a strategy. It has to be like 15 minutes or longer. So it's 15 to 30 minutes every week. And it doesn't matter what I do. I have to put it out. Why? Because YouTube is the algorithm wants consistency. Yeah. So I was putting them out constantly. I was coming up with a decent thumbnail. I watched 10 videos on how, what a thumbnail looks like. I like, I, I had this long-term strategy and it's like, well, how did you know it was going to work? I didn't know yeah. it was going to work, yeah. but it doesn't take that long. And I didn't have anything else going on in my life. And <laughs> because I'm, I'm an ex-con. Right. Like, let's, <laughs> like, either this or McDonald's. Right, if it I'm fails. I'm going to take my chances on this. I'm not in any worse position. <laughs> like this class takes an extra yeah. five hours, you know, and I was editing the videos myself. It was like, and I got to that point and I remember even saying, I can do this for so long and then I am going to have to get to a point where I'll be out of material. And I have to start interviewing people, other criminals. But at that point, I want to have like a three camera setup, right? Mm -hmm. So I had like, so I start people by this point, people are reaching out to you. Mm -hmm. What can I do to help you? I, I, I like you. I, this, and I'm going on other podcasts because I knew if I go on other podcasts, I'll get more subscribers. I kind of conscript, I always think yeah, I'm yeah. conscripting their, 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 uh, their uh, sub subscribers. And and everybody's like, oh, well, you have a story. Yeah, but it doesn't matter if you have a story because everybody's got a story. You could, There are other podcasts, entire platforms that are based on the fact that they're starting a podcast mm -hmm. or that they're starting a small business or there's and they need content. There are entire websites that are dedicated that you can put up a five-minute video about here's who I am. And it could be as simple as I worked at McDonald's for six years. I don't like where my life is going. I don't want to go to college for four years. It's not what I want to do. I I, dr I dropped out of high school. Um, you know, I talked to my mom. I haven't heard. Don't know. You just tell a silly story, a story that you think this is this is nothing. Yeah. And this is what I'm doing. And I'm trying to build my 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 YouTube channel. And I've got 300 subscribers, and half of those are my relatives and friends. <laughs> and I really need people to subscribe. And I like. And here's what I talk about on my podcast. I'd like to come on your podcast and talk about being a podcaster. Yeah. And if you put that out there, believe it or not, you'd probably get four different, four or five different interviews from other YouTubers about your channel and it would grow. And people don't realize that. You just have to be consistent and it grows and it grows and it grows. Yeah, you know what's really funny is, you know, in uh, in in human intelligence, uh, what we call human in CIA speak, right? There's different types of intelligence. There's signals intelligence and measurements intelligence and uh, imagery analysis and all sorts of different intelligence. But human intelligence, where you're actually collecting secrets from human beings, we call that human. And there's this concept in human where we say everybody's worth a cup of coffee. That's the same thing as you got to kiss a lot of frogs in business, right. right? So what what we are taught and how we operate in the field is that we have to essentially reflect the thing that we're trying to attract. So we're trying to attract spies. Right. So we have to behave in ways that attract spies. That's the same thing you're talking about right now, right? You're if you want to if you want to launch a podcast, you can create a podcast about launching a podcast. And then what's that going to attract? It's going to attract a bunch of people who have thought about or are thinking about or are in the process of launching a podcast, right? So now all of a sudden you got all these people who are, it's a built-in audience. Now, 
Does that mean all of those people are going to be super useful for you? No, no but they're, but who will be the people that become your future source of guests who will become your first round of guests who are going to be the people who will follow you for years just because they found you when you were small. That all comes from that first audience, right? It's everybody's worth a cup of coffee. You got to kiss a lot of frogs. And what, what fascinates me is that so many people are conditioned to think that they're supposed to be generalists. You're supposed to be good at everything, right? You go to public school, you go to private school, you have how many, how many classes? There's like 11 classes that you have to take a year. You take sociology and you take social studies and you take math and you take science and you take chemistry and you take algebra and you take gym and you take art. You're not good at any of them. Like you're getting exposure to all of them. Right specifically to make sure that you're not really good at any one of them. And if you want to get good at one of them, then you're supposed to go to college. And then when yeah. you go to college and you want to pick your major, you still have to take a bunch of core courses before you even qualify to start focusing on your major. Why? Because college is a business and college has learned that why would they let you take six classes and make you a master of fine arts when they can force you to take 24 classes to pull out $85,000 from you and you still get the six classes that you were looking for. People don't realize that if you can just niche down, if you can just focus on the thing that you care about and you reflect what you want to attract, you're going to have in just this rich, small pool of assets that take you wherever you need to go. I didn't, I mean, the, the concepts that I learned at CIA have become the bedrock of all the concepts I use in business, which could be good or could be bad. I'm not sure which one it is, but this this idea of a small, powerful asset pool has become invaluable to my business because now every year that I succeed, dude, I get messages weekly from people who are sending me a message just to remind me that they've been with me since the beginning. Oh, I, we it's, get that all the time. It's awesome, yeah. right? Yeah, it is. It's awesome. I've been following you since such and such. I'm amazed at your progress. You're amazing. You're inspiring. It's like inspiring. Yeah. Like, I always feel like I'm, how am I inspiring? But your he, opinion of inspiring. you, right? Your opinion of you doesn't matter. Right. It's their opinion of you that matters. Right. And, and let's be honest. One of the things that keeps us grinding every day is that person who you know is listening. That person you know is following. That person who you know is, is grinding through their day wondering Am I getting stepped on? I feel like I'm getting stepped on. Am I being ignored? Is there something here I can learn from? Is there, if I make one small change, is that actually going to change my life? Fuck yes. Right. It will. Watch us. Watch us make mistakes. Watch us take these steps. Watch us resist. And, and if you find this inspiring, go do it. I was going to say, like when you're talking about the CIA, like reaching, you're, you're putting yourself in a situation where people feel okay with coming to you and, and, you know, spying, right? Like you're trying to collect spies. You're trying to get people to, um, you know, what? Be, well, I guess become spies, right? So you're trying to cre create an environment where you're saying, hey, I'm here and I can help you without giving yourself up. Right. So it's like, a, you know, and you're putting those tentacles, you know, out there and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, but it, it you know, it, it's like when it's the same thing, like when I was in prison and I'm writing these guys' stories. Mm. There are guys were, well, do you think my story's got, you know, legs? Do you think it'll this? You, I don't know, but I have the time. Mm -hmm. So I can waste two months or three months on your story. Maybe it goes nowhere. Maybe his goes nowhere. I just need one to go somewhere. You just need one, one. to go somewhere. So it, so is it a waste of time? Right. It's, um, it's an investment, man. God, there was a, there was a, there's a movie called, 
Oh man, the score. No, no, the heist. It's called the heist. It's got Gene Hackman in it. And he, I remember there was, there's a conversation between two guys and the guy said, uh, I forget what it, he, they were doing something. He's like, why? This is a waste of time. And he goes, he looks at him and he said, you ever cheat on your girlfriend? And he goes, yeah, of course. He said, you ever set up an alibi? Say, I'm going to be in a friend's house. And he goes, yeah, sure. He goes, you ever go through, you cheat, you get home. She never called your friend. And he goes, yeah, of course. Does he, that make and he goes, yeah, he goes, was that a waste of time? <laughs> he goes, subterfuge is never a waste of time. Yeah. And I was just like, love that. Like, I was like, so it was, I, I don't mind doing all these, just like going on all those podcasts. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know. Like, I, like on Julian's, you know, you went on Julian and probably thought, well, I've been on since concrete. You've probably been on whatever, 10 or 15 or 20 or who knows how many. And you went on Julian's and probably thought, you know, well, it's just, a, it's just another one. You don't know which one's going to, going to hook into you and say, this guy is worth doing a ton of content on. He is amazing. And I'm going to push the hell. And some of your shorts on his have, I mean, five, 10, 15 million. I mean, so, yeah. I'm, over 40 million views. 40 million. I mean, his he, top short in an interview with us right? has 43 million views. That he, was the last time I checked it. He is. And here's the thing about Julian too. Like Julian has Julian has studied more yep. about how the algorithm works and how, like, he will literally go through, he'll spend four, five, six, seven, eight hours on a one-minute, uh, one-minute short, I said TikTok, but short, and, I mean, he will alter every little thing. No, no, they don't like that line. See that line you got right here? Yeah. Like, I was there one time, I showed him one of my shorts. Yeah, that's, no, no, it's pretty good, but. You see this line right here? I'm like, why? <laughs> yeah, the line between this and the it doesn't like that. So here's what you have to do. And yeah. he's explaining. I'm like, who figured, who told you that? He's like, I've just so I've here's what I did. I put out and he like he runs little tests and and studies the analytics, and it is insane. Yeah. But see, he's I think he's taking, you know, he was what a stockbroker, right? Yeah, like, he was what, he was on he was a financial investor, yeah, investment so he, banker. He's taking that whole thing and applying it to the algorithm. Yeah, and plus he's he's also you know he, he's he's got a great setup, young, and he, single, and, and obsessed, and amazingly curious. Yeah, uh, you know, a, a super curious soul. Danny's the same way. He's a very curious person. You yeah. know, these guys. Uh, I, I have a buddy Bozak who will sit down and talk to you for an hour and a half and never interject anything about himself, which I'm incapable of doing. Uh, so yeah, these guys are, you know, they're, they're good interviews, interviewers. Sorry. Yeah. Um, it's funny because at CIA, you know, people, people think from the movies that, that, you know, we become like this shadow government and we control everything. Right. In, in fact, we mostly hate each other for the vast majority of CIA officers don't get along because we're all basically cut from a very similar cloth, right? We're right. all type A, we're all perfectionists, we're all egotistical, we're all, you know, self-motivated and self, uh, self-interested. self So when you put five people into a room and you tell them they have to work together, what's really going on in all five of their heads is, how do I work together enough that I can actually be the best by you know, differentiating myself from the other four people? Because right. it's still a giant, it's still a government job, it's still a pyramid to get to the top. They might they might train and recruit 200 new field officers a year, but there's only one director of the National Clandestine Service or one director of the director of operations, right? So you, you, not all 200 people are going to make it up there. So right. there's a huge attrition rate as you go up the chain. So this idea that we all somehow collaborate together to run the government secretly is a ridiculous concept. What actually happens is we create very strong bonds of loyalty 
to individuals within the organization that supersedes our loyalty to the organization as a whole. And the reason I say that is because, you know, we're talking about the Danny Jones podcast. We're talking about the Julian Dory podcast, both of which are podcasts that we've been on, both of which are podcasters that have essentially grown up with us. Danny's almost doubled in size. Yeah. And, and Julian's like quadrupled in size. Right. And this was all before you, like they were reaching out to you before you had a podcast. I've had a podcast on YouTube for a month and a half. And how many subs do you have? 30,000 subscribers on the 30,000 subscribers on the podcast and 80,000 subscribers on my original channel. My original channel was me like not knowing what I was doing either. Right. Right. But the reason those numbers grew were because of the, uh, the early on help, even as begrudging as it was from Danny. Right. Right. But that early kind of incubation period where they were like, Hey, let's have a, let's have a conversation and let me share you with my audience. And then it just grew from there. Right. I mean, I've done some of the biggest podcasters out there in the space. I've sat with, with, uh, Lex Friedman. I've sat with Tom Bilyeu. I've sat with, you know, the, the, I mean, there's countless numbers of incredible podcasters that I've had a chance to work with Chris, uh, uh Chris Williamson and, uh, Brian Rose, Patrick, Bet David, like huge podcasters. And it all points back to those first initial podcasts with Julian and Danny. Right. Yeah. So I feel an incredible amount of loyalty to both of them. So I do laugh when you're like, you're uh, Danny Jones. Who the hell is that? <laughs> that will actually never happen. Right. Right. Because I will always remember you, Danny, Julian, these people who back when I had very little competition for my time, dude, I remember getting your first email. I remember logging in because I was still working for somebody else. And I was trying to build my own business. And then I get this email from you. I don't even know how you found me. Oh, Kilo 23. Yeah, yeah, Kilo. Yeah. So I get this email from you and I'm like, you know, this is, it was so different from my daily grind at my corporate job. But I was like, yeah, I'll tell, I'll totally do this. I'll read this guy's story. And the whole, uh, it was Frank. Uh, Amadeo. Amadeo. Listen, my guys love Frank Amadeo. Absolutely, dude. He's, I'm, he's, I'm waiting for that movie to come out. Uh, I'm waiting for someone to pick up that story. I mean, I've, me too. So I was going to say, uh, <laughs> it's funny because in the in that Amadeo thing, you actually you talked about how with uh, the CIA, how they uh, how most of the people in the CIA are. Um, well, you were just saying like Type A, but you said you know that there's a you know they're they're off like they're 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 narcissists they're right. you know they're they're different they have different type of uh, personality defects but that's what makes that's what makes them unique and amazing and that at specifics within that right. organization it's the same thing i would say about like narcissists i'm like yeah you're right they're they're jerks they're narcissists they're they're self-absorbed but you know but they're also the guy that gets it done. Like narcissists yeah. yep. tend to, they tend to either be running a, a be a CEO, running a, a billion dollar company, or they're in prison. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like very few of them, unless you, obviously there's a scale. Right. But you know, yeah, that's what it takes to, to push that envelope. It takes that guy that's willing to, you know, step on people and, and push people and be a bully. And, you know, it doesn't make you super likable, but it's the guy that gets things done. And it makes you likable to other people like you. Yeah. And guess what that means? That means all of a sudden, instead of having 50 friends that are kind of worthless, right. you have five friends who are all incredibly valuable because they're all cutting throats on their way to the top too. Right. Now, if you don't want to be the person cutting throats, that's fine. Turn off this fucking podcast right. because you're not the one we're trying to talk to. But if you are the one who's like, you know, I, I kind of want to cut throats. Yeah. I kind of want to step on people's shoulders. I kind of think I am smarter and better than other people, but I'm hiding it so that I can blend in with society. Right. Yeah. Because I don't want to be criticized for the way that I think. And I don't want to be, you know, I don't want people to think less of me. I don't want people to judge me. No, fuck that. Let them judge you. 
invite the judgment because you just identified somebody who is threatened by you. And this is such a huge concept for us at CIA is that we are, we are all a little off. Yeah. Right. We're ethically flexible or we're morally flexible. We, we run on the spectrum uh, of autism, you know, in multiple different categories from, from sociopath all the way down to, to, uh, you know, for somebody who's, who can't handle themselves in society at all. And the reason that we do that is because we need to attract the same kind of person because the only kind of person who's going to be a useful spy is somebody who has had incredible success in their country. Think about it. To steal secrets from a country, you have to get access to somebody who's been trusted with secrets for their country. Right. You don't accidentally become a general. You don't accidentally become a politician of a foreign country. You don't accidentally become a CEO. These are people who have had fantastic success, who have done amazing things, which means they're a little fucked up too. Right. And the only way they're going to trust you to give you their secrets, the only way they're going to trust you to get into a clandestine relationship where you exchange gold, alcohol, porn, whatever, in exchange for their secrets, the only way that's ever going to happen is if they look at you and just like you were talking about how, how drug dealers can, can sniff out a narc, mm -hmm. the only way that a fucked up trader is going to look at you and trust you is if when they sniff, they smell that you're fucked up too. Right. And the only thing that we really have to offer them is at some point we're kind of like, hey, you know what? You're fucked up. I'm fucked up. We can trust each other. We can work together. But let me tell you who backs me, the U.S. federal government. Right. Right. And I can offer you all the benefits of working with the U.S. federal government, whether that's, you know, extracting you from your country or hooking you up with money or taking you on trips around the world, whatever it is. And to a, to a cutthroat fucked up person who has that kind of power and that kind of leverage in their own country, that's a very appealing offer. So, um, okay. Can, can we... And, and this is, I, I, I hear you, <laughs> but we got so far off. Like here's, here's a, here's the thing I was going to mention. And this is funny because this happened, this, somebody said this in the comment section and it, I, I'm, you know, whenever I, I, and I've mentioned this a couple of times is that, uh, like typically when I interview someone, I, I usually say, okay, well, you know, let's, let's start at the beginning. Right. Um, and you know, and uh, you know, or like where were you born, kids, that sort of thing, you know, kids, your parents, you know, kind of at the beginning. So, and this guy in the comment section uh, said, if Matt Cox was interviewing Jesus Christ, he would start off with, so where were you born? <laughs> no. <laughs> so just, just that so we have it in the podcast. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I know, you know, we don't want to go three hours. Right. So, um, uh, can we, can you do me a favor and just kind of, you know, tell me like, you know, where were you born, mom and dad? How did you, how did you get to the CIA? Yeah, Reader's like, Digest know, version, right? Exactly. I'm with you. Fine, yeah. So I was born in Arizona, uh, born of a mother who was who was born Mexican. Okay. So I'm first generation U.S. citizen, and the whole reason that we're American citizens is because we immigrated illegally across the border. Okay. So that's how my family started, and and we have a long history and a long tradition of being proud American citizens. But we got there through loose borders back in like the 1960s, whatever it was. So I was born in Arizona. My father died very shortly after I was conceived. So I was technically born a bastard child to a Mexican Catholic household, raised by my mother and my grandmother until I was about five. And then my mom married a white guy. Okay. And the white guy that she married she moved us to Pennsylvania and I became like a brown kid in rural Pennsylvania school. So for anybody out there who's had like a rural school experience or who's had a minority experience in any kind of, you know, normal public school or rural school. Like I totally, I totally understand what that's like. They were using racial slurs on me that I didn't even understand. Right. I remember being like 
in eighth grade and having people call me spick and wetback. And I was like, I don't understand. What does that mean? Going home and talking to my, my, I'm, I was raised by a white guy. So in my mind's eye, I'm a white guy. Right. I am not a white guy, dude. Like right. I look at myself in the mirror still and I'm like, damn, that's a good looking beard. White guys don't have that kind of, oh shit, I'm not a white guy. <laughs> right. It's, it's wild how your self-image is defined by what you see in your parents when you're younger. Right. So, you know, I'm raised by a, a, a stepdad who's your fairly stereotypical stepdad, right? I have my two half sisters. My mom gives birth to two sisters with my new dad. Uh, he's favoritist towards them. I struggle with that, you know, yada, yada, yada. We all have childhood trauma if we're going to be successful. So fuck yeah. it, who cares? I go and I, I reach like uh, the years where we start thinking about college. And I know that I don't want to stay in rural Pennsylvania. I don't want to work at the hardware store. I don't want to, you know, be a, a mortician and no shit. My school was so rural that senior year, they take you on a tour of the local downtown and you do like a half a day's work with all the local businesses. Like that's how okay. rural my school was. And I was that's like, kind of nice. That's nice. <laughs> that's all right. I mean, maybe that's nice for some people, but for me, I was like, hell no, I don't want to do this. So right. I have to work in the factory. I've got to figure out how to get the fuck out of Pennsylvania. Right. This part of Pennsylvania, my the part of Pennsylvania I was grew, I grew up in is called Enola. Enola, spelled backwards, is the word alone. Like I was not going to not going to double down and invest in that kind of lifestyle. Right. All right. So I had two options. I was either going to go, cause my parents had no money saved up. We were, we grew up poor. Yeah. I was either going to go military or I was going to somehow get a scholarship to college. Now for me, getting a scholarship to college was like a laughable, a laughable thing. It was so laughable that when I went to my guidance counselor and I was like, Hey, I think I might want to go to college. He actually like did what guidance <laughs> counselors aren't supposed to do. And he was like, Oh shit. I mean, let's, let's talk serious about this now. So let's take a look at your grades. <laughs> You haven't exactly been preparing yourself for that. Exactly, exactly. So uh, so needless to say that when I looked at like the scholarship options, I, I was shocked to find out that, you know, I, I'm going to have to pay $50,000 for college, but the scholarship's only $3,000 and that scholarship's only $8,000 and that's like $500 scholarships. I was like, I don't understand how this whole scholarship thing works. Right. This is really complicated for me. And then this, uh, this senior, I was a sophomore in, in high school, and this senior who was smoking hot, this beautiful female, it's accepted to the Naval Academy. And I'm like, what's the Naval Academy? And if chicks like that go there, right. how do I get there? And not only was I dead she wrong. She was probably also going there because chicks like her go there. But anyway. <laughs> <That's> okay. <laughs> All the better reason for me, right? So, so that's, that's how I learned about these things called military academies. And military academies are a full ride scholarship, but you are supposed to be like generally good at multiple things, not like really good at math or really good at art or really good at science. So now I had kind of a new objective, right? Get smarter in all things, but just kind of smarter. And then even better, we lit that, those were the days of like solid affirmative action. And as much as I might think I was white, I'm actually brown. So now being a brown kid in Pennsylvania is really going to work out. Right. So that was what took me to a military academy. So I ended up qualifying to get into the Air Force Academy. I had some uh, some good interviews along the way that got me in there, and boom, I'm I'm a college student living in Colorado instead of you know staying in rural Pennsylvania, and that led into an Air Force career. And in my Air Force career, I ended up getting a, a high level of secret, uh, security clearance because I was working with nuclear uh, nuclear weapons, and it was a very depressing thing for me because I had joined the military to like see the world, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I was living in a missile capsule, a hundred feet underground babysitting nuclear missiles for the end of the world alone. Oh, 
Hello. Back, right. back in my own hometown, right? With one other person. Oh, really? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. I was but, say, it was in your hometown? <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. But no, that whole idea of being alone. And, you know, when you're living underground, we had 72-hour shifts, which are just as horrible as they sound. When you're living underground 72 hours at a time with one other person that you don't get to choose, it's, it's more horror story than porn. It's horrible, right? Right. Like this other person, like it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's not fun. So long story short, I was like, you know, having been in the shoe for 45 <laughs> days, I, my, my heart doesn't really go out to you, but I hear you. I get it. I get it. Fair point. I mean, I'm definitely <laughs> Nobody preaching to the wrong Nobody asked who my was. <laughs> so the, uh, the, you know, coming out of the military in 2007, right? We're in the middle of uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. I've got medals in both wars. Um, I'm, I'm sitting underground, babysitting nuclear missiles and, and generally hating the fact that I have to shave every day, keep my hair less than an inch and shine my shoes to, to be underground out of the sunlight three days, of, three days at a time. Right. I was like, this is not for me. So like most people, when they break up with a significant other, I start looking for something that's completely different than what I'm doing right now. Right. Okay. So right now I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a key around my neck that can destroy humanity. What is the polar opposite of this? I mean, technically it was going and becoming a priest, but there was no way in hell I was right. going to do that. So the, the next best thing was to go join the Peace Corps. So I was like, oh, there we go. So I start applying for the Peace Corps and I start sub submitting my paperwork to resign from the military when my time is up. And in the process of applying to the Peace Corps, I get contacted by a CIA recruiter who's basically like their, their opening line to me was, hey, we saw you were looking at this. We think you might be better at this. And that was kind of what got me started on the whole path. Okay. So that's my Reader's Digest version of how I went from, you know, bastard child in Arizona to... So you never did go to the Peace Corps. You ended up going to CIA. Correct. You can't. Did you know it was CIA when they approached you? No, not no, right away. No, because I was, I mean, I was 27 years old. And like most people, when somebody calls you and they're like, hey, this is the US federal government. We think we have an opportunity for you. You're kind of like all the creative juices start flowing. You're like, I don't even have to say yes. Like you're going to pay for a plane ticket and a hotel room and a rental car. I don't know what you were like at 27, but it's a conversation. I, yeah, let's, yeah, let's go for sure. Yeah. Right. I don't say no to cool opportunities like this. It's like a hot chick showing up and being like, Hey, can I come in for a drink? Yes. <laughs> yes, you can. I don't know where it's going, but I know yeah. where I hope it's going. Right. <laughs> so for sure. When I got my phone call, I was like, I really hope this is going to fast cars and tuxedos and I'm going to be a spy. But it wasn't until I actually got there for the first interview. And after the first interview, that they were like, we think you might be cut out to be a national clandestine service officer or an undercover CIA officer. <laughs> like, what's that conversation like? Right? <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Like, I, you know, it, that's one of those things you just, I'm sure you absolutely at no point do you think, I yeah, I've been preparing for this. No, like, you what? what? There's no confidence. The hardest thing for do me. Do you have the right file? The hardest thing, <laughs> the hardest thing for me in business has been wearing that, that bravado. Right. Because, like there was no bravado in me, right? I'm, I'm having to learn that you have to turn that on publicly at times, right? So it's funny that you say that because that first interview, no shit. That first interview, I was talking to a middle-aged woman, gray hair, wearing a, no shit, a sweater and Velcro sneakers. That was the first interview. So, so she didn't scream CIA. No, dude. So like I'm getting on a plane you in thought. Montana and I'm like, I'm going to go interview to be a spy, I hope. 
And then I get off the plane, I get to my hotel, which is a shitty hotel in my small little economy size rental car. And I go to this nondescript building and I'm like, I'm not going to be a spy. And I walk in and sit behind fucking Bertha. And Bertha's sitting there asking me questions about, tell me this thing that you were very proud of and tell me this thing that was a great failure. And how do you feel about being dishonest? And I'm telling her the truth because part of me is just like, whatever Bertha has to offer, I don't want any part of it. Right. Right. So I'm like, oh yeah, I have no problem lying to people. And yes, I think I'm better than most people. And yeah, yeah, I'm like, I'm telling her all this stuff. Right. And then at the end, she's like, she, she, no kidding, pushes back from her desk and pulls out a drawer on the side and then pulls out uh, like a little manila folder and sticks it down on the table. And she's like, I think you might be a really good fit for the National Clandestine Service of the United States Central Intelligence Agency. And she opens the manila folder and it's a fucking flyer for CIA. And she pushes it across the desk. And she's like, this is what I think you might be a good fit at. What do you think? And I like had that moment, that same cognitive dissonance that is in your head right now right. was in my head. And I'm like, this is a fucked up test. Yeah, like, are you telling punked? <laughs> <laughs> you can't really be. And it's a flyer. Like, this isn't Legoland. You don't just open a, a manila and, and hand me like a, here's your timeshare brochure from right. CIA. That's not how this is supposed to work. This is supposed to be like hidden walls and special lights and laser beams and stuff, yeah. right? So no, it was, uh, apparently it was real, even though I didn't really believe it was real. Um, but yeah, so then she walked me through that whole thing and, and that was how my, my process of application actually started. How long were you, how long were you there before you, you met your wife, mm -hmm. right? And, um, she was in the same line of work. Yeah. So my wife actually started at CIA the same day and in the same class of new recruits that I did. She was a different skill set. And she had taken her own path to get there. Like my wife has a law degree and she has multiple degrees and she speaks multiple language. She's actually brilliant. Right. right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we ended up landing kind of in the same, it, it's a, the room where new initiate where new uh, initiates yeah. are kind of sworn in is a, a big pavilion called the bubble. And if you look up CIA on like Google maps and you look down at it from the sky, you'll actually see a giant like building that's shaped like a golf ball. And that's what we call the bubble. It's basically where we go for all of our, you know, all of our auditorium conversations and all of our, uh, what was it called in, in high school? Whenever you had, you had like a speaker in the middle of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Was. Yeah. Like a, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was that kind of auditorium, right? So we're in there and we're in there with 250 different people. And some of them are, are covert operators and some of them are tech officers and some of those are targeters and some of them are analysts. And we're all kind of getting sworn in and doing our whole oath of allegiance to the American constitution. And that's where we met. There are other podcasts out there that have gone over your story. So if you can talk a little bit about, you know, being the CIA and, and basically how, you know, you, you and your wife got to that point where you said, we want to have kids. We want to have a family. Like we can't be disappearing for six months at a time or two years at a time. And yeah. nobody can get in touch with us. Like, so if you could go into, you know, that whole thing, and yeah. if we could talk about that, then that would be, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's kind of cool is I get to tell a little bit of a different story this time because um, we've been in the process of writing and publishing a book. Okay. And our book has been picked up and our book has been, uh, so we're going to be, we're going to be launching, we're going to be releasing in June of 2024, a new book that's under the imprint of Hachette Publishing Company. So the third largest publisher in the United States. And in that process, we've had to have a lot of conversations with what's called the PCRB or the uh, Pre-Publication Review Committee for CIA. Right. And they've cleared us to tell more of our stories. So it's actually going to be a different story. But but long story short. Is it okay if he keeps that part in? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, the, uh, the, the My wife and I both started CIA and we like 
we didn't know what we were getting into. She she was just trying to get a government job so that she could retire. Right. And the only organization she didn't want to work for was CIA. And I was trying to get to the Peace Corps. Right. So we both came from very far flanks to end up at CIA. Yeah. And then because we were recruited as generalists, not as specialists, right? Because like if you're a Chinese speaker, you're a specialist in China. If you're a Russian speaker, you're a specialist in Russia. And if you can... If you know how to hack a computer, then you're a specialist in what's known as the information operation director at IOD. So, you know, there's all these different specialists that come in. We were brought in as generalists, which basically meant that we were kind of farmed out to whoever needed help. Right. So for me, I'm a brown guy with like, that looks ethnically ambiguous. And I, I was former military. So I ended up getting assigned to all the shithole places of the world, right? Any place where a brown guy can blend in and not be remembered, that's kind of where I ended up going. So I was doing a lot of counterterrorism stuff, counterproliferation stuff, counter-narcotics stuff. My wife had multiple degrees and she was fluent in multiple languages. So she ended up doing a lot of covert influence stuff. She ended up doing a lot of covert, um, uh, uh, covert action stuff. So we ended up doing these kind of non-mainstream things in a very elite or, uh, organization. And it's important for people to understand CIA is a very large government organization. Not everybody does sexy shit. There's right. a lot of boring, mundane shit that people end up doing. And that was kind of where we ended up. So I'm I'm assuming that, you know, just <laughs> because of my vast knowledge in watching movies, is that <laughs> is that basically like it's not like they're Sending you somewhere and saying, you know, you have to go infiltrate this or do or do this, but or they they may be saying that, but what they're what's really happening is you're going and you're working a regular job, yeah, and you're put into a position where you can either you know you can influence uh, certain people or you can hope to to um, lure people into giving over government. Uh, you know, government information for th for their government because they're in a good spot. So they're trying to put you in a spot, but you're basically still working a regular job. So you're you're there working a regular job, and that could take that doesn't take two months. That could take eighteen months. It could right. be you could be there for a year working a regular job, hoping that you are able to put yourself in a position to meet people that you can build up a, a friendship with and convince, or at least a um, you know, whatever you can build up some kind of a. a their confidence in you, trust in you that they will then, you can then approach them. But that could take, that doesn't take 30 days. Right. You're exactly. So, okay. I mean, you're, you're more right than you are wrong. Okay. For sure. We go and we, <laughs> we, we, we go and we take on some kind of phony career. Right. We're basically trained con men. Right. Right. Or con women. So we go somewhere and we build up a footprint that we belong there when we don't. And we can kind of, we can craft the footprint. We can prepare the battlefield before we go because we're the CIA. So we can right. create fake online personas and we can create fake, you know, banking records and education records and everything for our alias before we actually land on site. So when we land on site, we know it's actually day one on site. But if somebody in that country, Mogadishu or, or uh, Turkey, if they were to actually research us, they would see like all this stuff that says right. that we've been there forever. So we go there and you're right, we, we basically live in an undercover capacity, which means that we live off of what we call the local economy. We become somebody in the local community and we live that role and we do a day job that's basically a nine to five job, but we don't just hope to make contacts. Our job for CIA doesn't actually start until after the day job ends. So what really happens is you work a 12 to 14 hour day, six to seven days a week. 
you live your lifestyle. We call it a lifestyle career because you don't really get days off. So you're doing your nine to five. And then during your nine to five, all that's there to do is just what we call it's creating cover for status. You're there for a reason. The reason that you're there is because you work in a tire factory. So boom, you work in a tire factory all day long. But then by night, you actually go out there and you try to make friends with with the people that you need to influence. Now, for me, a lot of my work was in the counter space, counter proliferation, counter narcotics, counter terrorism. So the people I had to like cozy up to were scumbags. Right. So my cover roles were oftentimes scummy cover roles, right? Because it's the kind of person who, whenever they sniff me out, I fit, right? I work. So you don't have a you don't have a cushy job in the embassy. So I was looking to drive sports cars and wear tuxedos, and I got recruited to like you know, sell fish tacos on a freaking wheel cart. Uh, you're pressing stuff in a, in a factory <laughs> like this mother. Why am I doing this? Yeah, what? But, it's uh, not sexy. It's not, right? So so after, from 2007 to 2008, I was going through training. From 2008 to 2010, I'm basically in a, in a variety of these just armpits of the world, right. trying to crack into terrorist groups and trying to crack into proliferation circles and trying to get arms dealers and human traffickers and, and collect low-level secrets because... The government secrets are all your really elite stuff. The rest of us are out there just trying to keep Americans safe, prevent bombs from going off in Boston and prevent, you know, airplanes from crashing into planes in New York. And we didn't do very well at either of those, right? So that's, that was the main focus of what me and many, many different CIA officers did until 2010. And in 2010, I got called in to a secret meeting where my history of fixing shitty stuff turned into this opportunity to like combat a major threat against CIA, which I didn't even know existed at the time. It was so compartmentalized, I didn't realize it was happening. So- Spectre. Yeah, so that, that invitation, that conversation in 2010, completely transformed my entire career. And my wife and I were, a, well, we were a married tandem couple. We had just gotten married like two months before that conversation happened. So we both got pulled into this same operation. And the operation was essentially a, a, a way of creating a new operational methodology that would take CIA into the next like 50 years of operations, right? Because we had been built around Cold War tactics. Right. And then we had not really evolved past Cold War tactics, even though it was 2010. We were still leveraging Cold War tactics to fight terrorists and it wasn't working. So they wanted us to create a whole new way of doing operations. Uh, before you think that that sounds special, I can guarantee you that knowing the way CIA works, there were 15 other people that they had the same tasking for. Right, right. And it was just, okay, all 15 of you go out there and try and do it. And we already anticipate we're going to lose seven of you. But hopefully one of the remaining eight will figure this out. I don't like the way that sounds at all. But that's the way it works, right? And when you say lose, you mean like it's not going to work and then they come back and do something else. No, that's, that's, not, that's not quite <laughs> that's what I mean. That's what you meant, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're all disposable assets, right? That's yeah. one of the things that makes the job sexy when you're a little bit off. <sighs> that's horrible. That's a, hor that's a horrible story. Oh, I, um, that's, <laughs> well, yeah, I would have never guessed that's a horrible seven. story. <laughs> It's easy for you to say. You're like, no, it's a great story. I mean, nobody, we haven't seen Bob in a while, but no. I didn't like Bob. Bob's well, Bob. There's no, Bob. there's no guarantee anything bad happened to Bob, right? Bob was <laughs> yes. compartmentalized out of, out of sight, out of mind in that world, man. That's part of the profession. Oh my God. Um, so, okay. So how, well, how long, how long did, how long are, are these, 
these I'm going to say missions is probably generally a mission is between like three and six months. Okay. What we were assigned to do in 2010 ended up taking us two and a half years. Oh, I was just going to say, but if it, if it takes root, right? Like if it, if it bears fruit, then it, it they start extending it. Sort of okay. what ends up happening is if it bears fruit, they have to ask themselves the question. They being CIA leadership has to ask themselves the question. If we extend this with the same people, do we run the risk of losing the people who have set it up? Or do we replace the people who have set it up and make it more of an institutionalized process, right? Think of it like a, like a director of sales or something like that in a business. When you have a good director of sales, do you keep them as the director of sales or do you move them up to become the vice president of sales, right? That's the same kind of process that, that happens at CIA. Okay. And oftentimes what they wanna do is they wanna move you up because it's a major loss. It's a loss on multiple fronts. If a successful officer gets captured in the line of duty, because then not only do you lose the successful officer and all of their intellectual property and all of their continuity operationally, but you also end up having an international issue. Right. Whereas if you can fleet that person up in the chain of command and replace them with somebody who's more disposable, you end up documenting their processes and now you can basically just institutionalize the process and protect the asset, right? There's, it's a, people don't realize this is how CIA works, but a lot of times what ends up happening is, is if you are captured, like there was a guy I worked for, uh, there was a guy I worked for at CIA. I don't even know if I can say it. I probably can't say his name publicly, even though I'm pretty sure he's overt. Jimmy. Jimmy. So I worked for Jimmy at CIA. Jimmy was captured by SVR in Russia during an assignment that he had in Argentina in like the late 90s. So he's captured by the Russians in Argentina, extradited to Russia where he spends three to six months in a Russian prison until there's a spy swap between CIA and Russia in the early 2000s. He gets to come back from Russia. Well, now they don't ever want him to be at risk of being captured again. So how do they protect him? They promote him into positions of authority, right? That right. protects him from ever going overseas, and it rewards him for a, a job well done, right? Right. Even though most of the people that work for him are like, that dude is a train wreck. That dude is mentally unstable. That dude has alcohol issues. Yeah. That dude is a CIA security risk. So popular opinion was irrelevant because CIA had a way of basically putting him into golden handcuffs. Keeping him in the organization and moving him up is how they kind of kept him under control. Yeah, I was going to say, unfortunately, in, in like the Bureau of Prisons, if they have somebody who is a train wreck, you know, they'll, they can't fire, they, they have such a good union. They can't fire them. They'll promote them yep. just to get them. We can promote you and send you way over here to get you out of the prison that you're in just to get rid of you yeah. and move you up. So I always say that like, you know, the people at the top are the ones that were the most problems. And that's often, I mean, that's not just true in CIA and the, and the prison system. That's part of the flaw that happens in our government professional system. Yeah. Your generals are not always the best soldiers. They're just the soldiers who were problem children who got migrated up the ranks so that they wouldn't cause more problems, right? Your, your public officials are not always the best public official, just the ones who stuck around. Right. Right. So how, how, how bad is the situation if you get grabbed and brought to another country and they, the, first of all, if they've grabbed you and brought you to another country and you say, no, no, I just work at a tire plant. I'm not this person. If they grabbed you and pulled you to the other country, the truth is they're 99.99%. Right. So you can hold out and say, no, 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 no. But first of all, nobody's holding out forever. Right. You know, um, but how bad would the treatment be of a U.S. 
CIA agent in another country. Does it depend on the country? Probably 100%. Yeah, it depends on the country and it depends on the geopolitics at the time, right? So uh, there's a f- there's a pretty famous case out there about two Americans in the 1950s who were captured by China. Their names were Downey and Facto. Uh, and these two officers went into China to help uh, evacuate an asset out of China. But if you remember, 1950s China was the very beginning of the Maoist revolution, right? They had just become communist. Right. And there was still a large nationalist component in the country that was allies with the United States from the end of World War II. So you can imagine how different that China is or was from the China that is now. Right. Downey and Factau were captured in mainland China in like 1952. They were not released from China until 1974. Wow. They were there for over 20 years. They, they both had children. They both had marriages. They were both legally uh, announced as dead after about three years. They had funerals. Their families didn't know they existed. And Did the CIA know that they were there? The CIA knew that they were there, but they had no plan for getting them out. They had no way of getting them out, and they did not want them to become chips in a geopolitical game. So anytime they're brought up, they just go, keep them. Yeah, we, yeah, we don't. We, so yeah, they just they deny, deny that they it. were ever CIA to begin with. That's what plausible deni- okay. deniability is, right? Plausible deniability means that you can plausibly to the public deny that that person is CIA. It does not mean that you can plausibly deny it to a foreign government. Okay. It means that you can plausibly deny it to the American people, right? So these guys ended up being there for like 22 years until China released them in the early 1970s after... Nixon made peace with China and there was all this cooperation with China. And then these two guys come back and they get 22 years of back pay and they get medals Horrible and then they get reunited with their families and their daughter who like one of the guy's daughters was like seven when he yeah. left and she was 29 when he came back and like, there's no relationship there. No. So, so how were they treated? They were treated poorly. They were, they were treated, they were systematically tortured, systematically interrogated. They were kept like one breath from death until the Chinese government transformed to the place where they realized like, oh, we might be able to use these guys as political chips with, with the US government. So then they were treated a little bit better. Plus after two or three years of like torture and interrogation, there's, there's such a thing as your information becoming obsolete. Right. The way that CIA was running operations in 1958 is not the same way they were running it in 1952. So what's the point in torturing these guys? You're not going to get any new information. So that was, that's just one example, right? And then you got other places like there was a major flap in Paris, France in 1998, where two CIA officers were captured by the French DGSE. And France is a place where there's flaps more often than people realize because the French are actually very astute at intelligence. Most people don't realize that. But they're also allies to a degree, right? So why are we spying on them? Right. Well, we because, spy on everybody. And everybody spies on us, right? There are no real allies in this world. Right. So there's a flap in 98. These two guys get captured by the French DGSE. They go into a French prison, but they're treated very, very well, right? Because the French are like, oh, mon ami, we spy on you. You right, spy right, on right. us. So we don't want to cause a big international incident. Right. So we're going to we make just let you keep spying. But we can't let you keep spying. So we're going to put you under house arrest in a nice hotel and we're going to take care of you for three, six, eight weeks while the US and French figure it out. And then we're going to extradite you and we're going to get French spies back in our prisoner swap. So it absolutely depends on the country and the geopolitics at the time. Mm. Okay. But it's not always a death sentence. And that's, it's very rarely a death sentence because a spy is a very valuable asset when a foreign country detains them, right? You got access to 
to names, places, people, organizational hierarchy, uh, modus operandi, the way that things are actually done, not to mention your assets and your tools and any technology that you've developed and that you've used in the field like this. It's a treasure trove of information. So it's much more valuable to keep them alive and then interrogate them. And then after you think that you've reached the end of your secrets, then you move into like the more aggressive, you know, torture and, and detainment type of techniques. And that's what foreign countries do to us, which is part of the reason why I don't understand why we got so offended when we started torturing terrorists. Oh yeah. The but, water boarding. Yeah. Waterboarding. Like they're not going to die. It's insane. It's, we, it's it, all right. Put a, put I a understand. Ro- we put a big roach in with a guy in a, in a, in a thing like, well, he, he hates bug. Like, yeah. he's not going to kill him. And going back to our conversation about judges, a secret court said it was legal. Right. A public court said it wasn't. Right. Does that really mean that it wasn't legal? Not any more than it means that it was before. Right. It's just subjective to the judge. I just don't know that you're going to get like if the person doesn't actually have my problem is that people if you don't have the information, you'll say anything at that point. I don't have the information this person wants. So that's the problem I think I have with torture. It's like not that it's not necessarily the torture. It's that if they don't have the information, then they start giving anything they can think of. And so you don't know whether it's reliable. Well, that's why you have information and intelligence best practices, right? You don't take single source information. So when you're waterboarding somebody and they're like, the bomb is under the bridge in Central Park. Right. Okay. Well, now that's just a piece of information. Can we corroborate it with any other piece of information anywhere else? Because if we're torturing two terrorists and one of them is like, it's under the bridge at Central Park. And the other one says, it's under the bridge at Central Park. Now we can corroborate that information, right? One, would they both come up with the same yeah, wild yeah, story no, no. under the same circumstances? Very unlikely. I was going to say, listen, like the, these guys are uh, like in, the, I, I want to say Saudi Arabia. I think it's Saudi Arabia. I could be wrong. Where they they lure the the um, journalist into the yep. uh, U, into their embassy and then they they grab him, flash Khashoggi. them guys in, chop them up yep. and get them out. Like, and then I think, what is it? The Indians that killed. Yeah, uh, in Canada. Yeah, in Canada. Was it a Sikh? Yes, a yeah. Sikh, a uh, Sikh dissident. Yeah, and this is what, you know, what's interesting about that. I've watched several videos on that. Some of the videos say that he had applied to become a, a Canadian citizen, and some are saying that that he had applied and been turned down. He wasn't a Canadian citizen, and then other ones were saying he was a Canadian citizen. So I, I, I'm not, I'm still not sure. I don't know if you know. No, I don't know the the details there. I think what that what that's highlighting though is the fact that it's, it was in their country, right? Yeah. and Canada is one of those countries that America doesn't want to become. Right. Where simply by being present in the country, you fall under protections of the country, right? The socialist law that exists up there. So there's a certain level of responsibility that Trudeau takes just because it happened in his territory. Right. The, the most interesting thing about the Sikh's death, and if, if for anybody who doesn't know that there was an assassination on Canadian soil of a Sikh dissident by the Indians. Yeah. The, the really important things to understand there are one, India is, is considered and has long been considered an ally to the West. Right. What kind of an ally comes in and kills somebody on their allied soil? It shows you how differently India thinks about an allied partnership versus what Canada and the United States think of as as an allied partnership, right? right? The second thing is that India kills people that it disagrees with. Right. Nobody realizes that, right? The difference between India and Pakistan isn't nearly as big as people think it is. Not to mention the fact that Pakistan, as fucked up as it is, is also an ally of the United States. So how is the United States an ally to both India and Pakistan when India and Pakistan are basically out to wipe each other off the map? Right. That's just a little bit of interesting geopolitics there for you. Um, But I thought it was mildly entertaining and wildly interesting to see 
how Canada and how some of the world reacted to this idea that the Indians came in and killed somebody on Canadian soil. Like, they're right. still the Indians. Yeah. I mean, you know, the problem is, is like, it, it goes back to the, our original conversation where it, it's, you know, what um, what U.S. citizens think of the United States and what the tr what the truth is. And then it, it's even like saying, hey, we we're our allies are doing horrible things. They're horrible people. They shouldn't be our allies. Well, wait a second. Yeah, wait a like, second. Time out. <laughs> there's no, there's no innocent people yeah. out there that we, if, if we were only dealing with countries that were like-minded, then we'd have, we, it would, it would just be us. Yeah. Like who else are we going to be, you know, allies with? Yep. So exactly. Yeah, you're going to have to, some of, some of your allies are going to be monsters. Yeah. And then, and you know what? There's a fantastic book out there called A Case for Psychopaths. And there's a strong case for why the world needs psychopaths. As much as the average, what I call bobblehead, your, your right. typical cog, the average bobblehead out there is going to bobble their head with whatever the current trend is in media and say, oh, psychopaths are bad. No. You know who make up our tier one forces? Psychopaths. You know who can make it through SEAL training and not give up? psychopaths right. right like the the system that we've created in the united states has made it so that we can identify them young at 18 19 years old 20 years old and then cultivate them so their psychopathy becomes a sort of perverted loyalty to a nationalistic sentiment instead of a loyalty to themselves and their own right. ambitions right but that also then leads to problems when your tier one navy seal is 50 years old and not a seal anymore mm. Because now they're like... Now he's on a gun tower taking out college students somewhere. Yeah. Well, yeah, because they, they become a person. They become a person who's capable of great skill. Yeah. But they're almost like a samurai who lost their master. Right? That's not a good situation. Yeah, it's not a good situation. That's why you end up having so much PTSD and, and so many issues with veterans, especially well-trained veterans. And I know that you're... I mean, good luck parsing through all the negative comments now from people who are saying right. I talk shit about tier one offers operators. That's fine. Yeah. But either way, it's assessable. They'll agree, right? There are some of them who then go on to like write books and start businesses and do whatever they can because they've been told for, th for 20 years that they're God's gift to the earth. Right. And then after 50 seals, write 50 different books and people are like, Oh, a seals, just a seal. You're like, you know, they don't know how to handle that. Not to mention the Delta operators who simply can't ever admit that they were Delta operators or the Marsoc Raiders who can't admit that they were ever Marsoc Raiders. I don't, I'd love, I'm going to nod my head like I know with both those. Are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We were, Colby and I were talking about the Marsoc guys uh, the other day. But yeah, there's, there's, there's intense, intensely trained people out there who are on the spectrum of psychopathy. And we need them because right. who else is going to answer the phone call when somebody says, hey, you guys have 10 days and then you need to raid this house in this desert and kill everybody there. And then you need to take blood samples of all of them and bring back some piece of DNA from this one guy who we think is the leader. And then they're like, okay, bam, 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 cut off an ear, stick it in a bag, stick it in my pocket, catch the helicopter back, pizza for dinner. It's a special kind of person, man. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely, definitely. I was, I was just thinking like, it's the same thing with the, uh, with the, with CEOs or, or con men or whatever, because they, they have to do not, they're not cut people's ears off, hopefully, but they have to, there's some, you know, sometimes, <laughs> Only on Friday. Yeah, sometimes it's that guy at the boardroom, you know, at the boardroom oh, meeting yeah. who said they're, where they're trying to get a deal that will save their company and make everybody millions. And the company saying, you're telling me absolutely 100% you can do that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We can do that. We've got right now. We're already tooling up. This will be done within 30 days. I give you my word. And the two guys sitting next to him who are just normal guys who, yeah. you know, graduated college and are just your average, you know, 
average citizen are sitting there thinking, oh my God, yeah. what did Jim just say? <laughs> he just we lied. haven't talked to anybody. There's nothing <laughs> being tooled up 30 days. I don't think so. Yeah. You know, and they're sitting there like, uh, and saying nothing. The guy's like, all right, well, we're ready to go. We're, all right, well, we're going to need the deposit at this time and this time. Walks out with 100% confident, confidence. The other guys walk out and go, oh my God, yeah. what do you, doesn't matter when we get close to 30 days, we'll get another, a two week extension. By that time, they've already invested in us. They can't pull back. We spent their $50 million. So, you know, they, they're like, oh my God, you're lying. You're this, yep. you're that. That's fraud. That's this. Doesn't matter. They'll be too deep in by that point to change their mind. And listen, the people that build our submarines and oh, our boats yeah. and our, and our plane, you know, Boeing and, and, and Northrop you know, Grumman. Yeah, they do the same. Like, That's but how the, it works. But the projects they're taking on are immense. Yep. And that you need somebody to do those types of things to get things moving. Otherwise, they never get out of committee. Correct. And you never get those things built. There's so much complexity to how those big deals are closed on the, on the government sector and in the private sector. There's so much complexity that, that your average person can't comprehend it, right? right. The, idea, the idea of saying yes to something that you're not totally sure of I mean, everything about a bobblehead's cog upbringing in public school, private school, and college tells them that you don't you don't overpromise and underdeliver. You never let yeah. yourself do that. But then what actually happens is at the at the highest scales, you're exactly right. You end up having to put on this fake bravado. You have to put on this air of confidence that you've got it all figured out. Because if you don't give them that peace of mind, then you don't get the investment that's critical to what you actually need to have in order to start the project. And you're totally right. That's that's how you know the the Joint Strike Fighter was delayed for five years before it actually hit the skies. And that's how the you know the new stealth bomber was delayed. That's how uh, silent engine submarines were delivered. None of them were delivered on time. None of them were delivered within budget. None of them were even many of them were actually delivered by a different provider because they had to change contracts after five years because they were like, you know what, you've missed the deadline twice. So now we're just going to take all of your IP and give it to Boeing or give it to Northrop Grumman or give it to Mantech or give it to somebody else, right? Yeah. I, I was just thinking a little, like, the Kennedy speech when he says, we're going to go to the moon and do the other things that, you know, that the other hard things and, and turns around and the next day people that scientists yeah. are getting phone calls saying, so how are we going to do this? He's yeah. like, what are you talking about? It sounded like he had it all wrapped up. <laughs> no, no, you're in charge. Yeah. In charge of what? Yeah. I don't even know how we we're going to do that. To doesn't matter. He just promised it. It's going to happen. You know, wow. So, uh, yeah, it's it's insanity. So, But that's also part of another superpower that we have with our government is that oftentimes the first adopter of technology is the federal government. As much as we're having consternations about AI right now, the first time I touched AI, I was at CIA. People didn't even know AI. Ex I didn't even know AI existed. I thought it was, I watched like the Terminator movie on right. Monday and then on Wednesday, they put me behind a console and they were like, oh yeah, there's an AI on the other end of this console. And you're like, there's a what? Like you're going to have you're, a conversation with yeah, it. Yeah, it's insane, right? And it wasn't a very good conversation. It wasn't nearly as good as what you get right now talking to Bard or ChatGPT. Right. But you were able to basically be like, you know, find me this person. And it was like, okay, Andrew, here's this person. And here's what we understand about this person. And here's where we believe they're going next. And you're like, this is crazy. Yeah. Right? And somebody made a fortune. I can't tell you who. And I can't tell you what company, but Wikipedia will. Somebody made a fortune building that AI for CIA, right? It's insane. Yeah, I uh, it, I was gonna say it, it's funny because we used to used to joke uh, about having Facebook friends, right? That you never meet, but um, my wife's uh, daughter Mary Shelley spent all day chatting with like 
you know, chat GPT. I mean, all day, like they have like a, whatever, a friend feature or whatever it is. And just joking and telling her jokes. And I mean, literally giggling and laughing <laughs> on, like you were, she's talking with a friend on the couch and you're yeah. going, it's like, what are you doing? Oh my God, I just, I just this. And they just told me a joke and it's so funny. And, it, and you know, I'm just asking questions. And it was like, like, this isn't even, now it's not even a Facebook friend yeah. who's at least a real person on the other end. Like, this isn't even a real person. <laughs> you can have a pretend girlfriend. You yeah. can have a, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a vastly different world than it was when. Yeah. And, and it's going to continue changing, right? And if anything, it's that changing face of the world that makes me so much more comfortable dealing with people who were already outcasts of the normal world anyways. Right. Right. The criminals, the spies, the, the folks like us who kind of, who refuse to be stepped on, those are the people who are taking control of their own future, their own destiny. So in the future, as much change is coming, as scary as it is, we've, we've been fighting for ourselves already. So we'll just keep scrapping all the way to the end. It's all the cogs in the middle. It's all the quiet future entrepreneurs. It's all the quiet future podcasters. It's all the ambitious people who refuse to pursue their ambition. They're the ones I feel sorry for because they're the ones that are literally going to get stepped on and left behind as they continue to wonder if they should take a chance, if they should take a risk. I was going to say, it's like, did you ever read, there was a book called, uh, I think it was called Syrup by, uh, I think it was Max Berry wrote it. Now, I could be wrong, but feel like I'm pretty right on that. Um, where he was talking about how there were certain people, like almost everybody he said has a multi-million dollar idea within their lifetime. The difference is, is that most people just don't act on it. Mm. Like how many times has somebody been like, bro, I was talking to yeah. my buddy about that right there. And they're watching a commercial yeah. or something came out on, you know, Google or there's some new thing and they're talking about it. They're like 10 years ago, me and my buddy that, yeah, but you didn't do anything. Yeah. Like that's my idea. No, it's not. Yep. Like it may be your idea, but it's his company and he did something. And, and so uh, I, those those are the people that make you know hundreds of millions of dollars because someone like you know Elon Musk says yeah we're gonna build an electric car and yeah there've been people have tried and we're gonna do it yeah but you need you need yeah but that's not good they'll only get two or three hundred miles I know and there's no yep. yeah but you know what I'm, what if we we're gonna go ahead and we're also gonna build all these all these electrical chargers and we're gonna, wait, you're insane <laughs> yeah like what are you talking about it's you know true. And, but those are the guys that that make tons of money and um so I have one more question <laughs> i have one more question is that when you and met your wife i i know just from you know talking with you and uh is it you guys you met your wife and you guys kind of decided hey you know we want to have a family and this is just not the the best environment working in the cia is just not the best environment for that right and and you left like what was your plan when you left because I'm thinking you're more of a long-term planner. Uh, that you know what what was the plan when what that we were going to do for a living when we let when you left and where did it end up? Like was doing the the uh, YouTube podcast like was that something we're going to make an attempt at or was that the the sole goal? Yeah, there was no plan. Oh, okay. yeah. That's so good. no, we were we were actually in the middle of an operation when my wife took a pregnancy test and found out she was pregnant. Mm. And I'll never forget the day because she came out of our little foreign apartment bathroom with tears in her eyes. And I was like, what's wrong? And then she showed me this birth control test and she was like, I've taken it three times. <laughs> and I was like, this is, we're pregnant. Like this is a good news story. And then she handed me an unused pregnancy test and she's like, I think it's broken, you pee on it, right? So she was crazy. She was like in the pits of despair and I was on this high. I was like, we're gonna have a baby. But once she was able to level back out again, uh, we had a conversation and we were like, you know what? We didn't join CIA 
to be CIA until we were 60. We joined CIA to see if it would be a good fit and see how it would work. But we've always, always known that we wanted to be parents, both of us individually and then married to. We knew it was something we always wanted to do. So now the, the timeline just got taken out of our hands and now we're pregnant. So how are we gonna handle this? So we decided to give CIA another year, year and a half of time. And in that year and a half, you know, we had a child and our child was, you know, nine months old and CIA had no interest at all in facilitating our goals as parents. They were like, you're CIA agents first. And right. we were like, well, we would like to be parents. And I remember, oh man, I remember this conversation going to my supervisor and saying, just give me five years. It's like, just give me five years in a cushy desk job in Virginia. I'll do anything. Just give me five years to raise my first child, get them into school, have a second child before my wife becomes, you know, at an age where she's afraid to have more babies, have my second child so that we can get like a nanny or a daycare set up. And then you can have your way with us. Then my wife and I'll be back. Like, we'd love to keep serving. And they had no appetite for that. They're like, no, this is your assignment. You need to do this. If you don't do this, then your career is tanked. And I was like, well, then I'm just going to leave. And I went back home and told my wife, it's time for us to resign. And she did not want to resign. She did not want to leave CIA. I told her the same thing CIA told me. She went back in, had a conversation, got the same kind of stiff arm. And then we were both like, this is not going to work. This is not going to work because CIA is not going to recognize us as human beings. It's only going to ever see us as cogs in their machine. Right. That's sexy and cool and fun when you're 29 years old, traveling the world and taking life, like taking risks with a life that you don't appreciate. Right. When you have a child that depends on you, it's not fun and sexy anymore. Right. So we put in motion our plan to leave. Had, nobody left. The attrition rate in 2014 when, C, when my wife and I left CIA was 0.2%. The only people who left CIA were retirees who left on Friday, took a contract with a private, a private intelligence company and came back in the door on Monday. That was, that was the cycle. But to have two successful middle career officers just throw in the towel, they had no idea what to do with us. So we left. Dude, it was humiliating. I lived in my parent, my in-laws garage for six months trying to find work. And I couldn't because I had a resume that was written by CIA. I couldn't write my own resume because it's a published piece of content. So somebody else had to write it for me. And it was horrible. Misspellings, typos. There were all the referrals, like all the, the actual references were empty, empty leads. So if you called the reference, nobody was there. It was an empty fake phone call, phone number that was created by CIA. So like... I wasn't getting hired. So what ended up happening is just to get a job, I ended up having to be a con man and fraud my way into a corporate 10 company. I was going to say, you couldn't come up with your own version of your resume. I, could, I, I would have been held legally culpable ah. to publish a document that was not reviewed and approved by CIA. Ah, oh, that's a prick move. That's a prick move. They didn't know what to do with us. They had never seen it before. Thank you, Donald Trump in 2016. Because when Trump took office in 2016, the attrition rate skyrocketed. And when he started taking a hostile approach to CIA and he didn't like what CIA was saying about him, he stopped the funding to CIA. Right. CIA has started seeing double digit attrition since then. They have a hard time holding on to people. They have a hard time hiring people. So that forced CIA to figure out how to handle that many people who were leaving. Right. But anyways, the, to answer your question, it was in the process of lying my way into a corporate career. And then having to learn in real time how to do the things I promised the corporate company I could do. Like I promised them I could do IT project management. I promised them I could code. I promised them everything <laughs> just to get a job because I had right. a baby to take care of and I was right. living in a garage in Florida and I'm fucking 33 years old. And I was like, this is humiliating. 
Um, and, and what I found is that over the four years that I worked for that company, all I did was apply my, what CIA taught me. I applied rapid learning techniques, influence techniques, persuasive techniques, you know, managing dialogues, managing management, right? I, I worked my way through the chain and I went from making $80,000 a year to $125,000 a year in four years working for a company that I lied my way into. And that's when it kind of dawned on me. I was like, oh shit, if I can teach other people how to do this, I could make a lot more money and have a bigger impact than what I'm doing right now. And that's where... That's where my company started. That's the, where Everyday Spy came from. The the lying your it's way. A, it's eleven fifty, by the way. Thank okay. you, sir. Yeah, yeah. The lying your way into a company just made you just went up a notch in my book. Um, <laughs> um, so so at that at, but at that point, so you're you're working for this company and you started Everyday Spy. What does Everyday Spy do? Everyday Spy is an online learning platform that pe that teaches people authentic, practical spy skills and tactics that give you an unfair advantage in everyday life. That's but, what we but do. But you don't, it's not just that. I mean, you you do like outings and stuff, right? Like you do, you actually do things where you get people together and you do like. Um, we do training events. Yeah, we do like, we do experiences. Yeah, we do. So the company started on a very basic premise, right? How do we teach real spy skills to real people right. to get a real advantage, a real outcome, right? That's all it was. Just be real. It's just like you said earlier on, you, you Kilo 23 connected us right. because you were like, I need somebody who's not going to toe the party line and tell me something real. And Kilo 23 was like, well, you need to talk to Andy, yeah. right? So I've always been very focused on being real because my loyalty is not to CIA. My loyalty is to individuals at CIA and to the mission of protecting the American people, right? Being able to share real stuff with real people is is what is so rewarding to me. So we started there. And then what I found is that some people wanted to learn through a blog. So I opened a blog. Some people wanted to learn through online courses. So I created online courses. Some people wanted to learn through live events. So I created live events. Some people wanted to learn under a paycheck that was paid for by their company. So we created corporate events. So the company has very much been reactive. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. But my business has been very reactive because people come and they say, we love what you're teaching. Can you teach it this way? And just like when you reached out to me, I have a propensity to just say yes without really thinking it through. Right. So you're like, hey, can you help me with a book? Absolutely. And then I didn't realize how much work that would be. So people come to me with all these ideas. I'm like, yeah, let's try it. Let's see how it works. And then that's how we got to where we are now. Yeah, I do that all the time. I, th I think oh, I'm not really sure, but I could probably figure it out. Yeah. You know, like uh, my and it's funny because my my dad used to say, God, and this was 40 years ago. But he's like, listen, you can you can get to the guy you need to get to with three phone calls. You may not know him, but you know somebody who might know him and he might not know him, but he probably knows somebody that might know him. And he knows, he definitely knows somebody right. that knows that guy that you want. He's with three phone calls. You'd probably be talking to that guy. It's like the old game that we played in high school, right? Three steps to Kevin Bacon. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that game? No, I don't. Oh, but I've man. heard the Kevin Bacon, the, the <laughs> seven, is it three or seven? I think it's seven steps to yeah. Kevin Bacon. But yeah, um, I don't, I've never had the movie knowledge to be able to get all seven. Uh, okay. Well, that's... Um, yeah, that's cool. I'm, I mean, I'm glad that it's, I'm glad that it's, it's taken off for you and that it's working and, and, you know, and let's face it, you know, this, this is so much more fun than, than anything so else. So much more fun, yeah. man. Uh, um, God, I feel like there was a, did you do something that was like a scavenger hunt? Uh, I mean, there's a, there's, we don't have to talk about the events. I think what we've covered is, is yeah. plenty. Oh, okay. I was just, but there say, are different kinds of events. Yeah. I was going to say one of the events you had talked about, I just remember thinking how much fun that sounded. Yeah. And I would, but you had already done it. 
Yeah. Like by the time it took place, I thought that sounds like it would be cool. What's wild is how demand influences the price of all of my stuff. Right. Because I remember when I first wrote my first book, I just, I was just trying to sell it on Amazon for 99 cents. Right. First book on Amazon for 99 cents and it struggled to sell. And then when I took it off Amazon and I put it on my own homepage, I put it on my homepage for like $9 and it sold like wildfire. And then I, I increased the price and increased the price. And now that same book is on my website for $27 and it still sells. But at 99 cents, so it just shows you how different like demand is and how different time impacts the cost of your products. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the event that you're talking about, the scavenger hunt event that you're talking about right. still exists, but now it's like 10 times as expensive as it used to be. And most likely will be changing again. Well, cool. I, I listen, I, uh, I appreciate you coming. I appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to, you want to, I, I no. loved this conversation. Okay. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thanks for putting up with me, ignoring your text messages. It's fine. Send me, I'm glad send me, that I guilted you into it. Yeah. It was, it was Danny that guilted me into <laughs> yeah. it, but still, but if you just, I mean, dude, send me, send me messages telling me how awesome you're doing and how awesome you're feeling. And I'll know it's not a bot. All right. And I'll give you my watches. I'll subscribe to the channel. All right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I appreciate you guys watching the uh, interview and we're going to leave all of Andrew. I always say Bustamante, but that's just because of prison. I just always go by somebody's last name. It's like Jones. <laughs> so um, we're going to give all of Andrew Bustamante's links. We're going to put them in the description uh, so you can subscribe and check out his stuff. Really appreciate you guys watching. Thank you very much. If you like the video, do me a favor, hit the subscribe button, hit the button, uh, hit the bell. So you get notified of videos just like this. Leave me a comment in the comment section and please consider joining my Patreon. See ya.